Melissa, you're Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Alicia. Thanks for your help. And thank you for the opening prayer. And for those that are new here, welcome. I want to add my welcome to Alicia's welcome. Um, I'm happy to be here tonight. And uh, my name is Melissa Sam, a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in the Hudson Valley in New York. And, um, you know, tonight we're going to talk about um, one of my favorite, favorite topics and favorite chapters. It's the chapter working with others. Um, and, you know, if you're new, you might be thinking, well, this seems like um, the advanced, you know, study. And why am I here if I'm still, you know, kind of struggling? And, um, but this is important because every single one of us who has any intention of getting well, getting over this, um, is going to be working with others. It's not, it's not just reserved for the select few. It's actually, you know, um, it's a 12-step program, right? Not an 11-step program, not an eight-step program, but there's 12 steps. And the 12th step is crucial. Um, and it starts, you know, it starts really getting discussed day one because the uh, solution for someone like me is to stop thinking so much about myself and start being concerned with others. So it really is, it's an important chapter. Um, and you know, usually when I start working with somebody, we start in the doctor's opinion and we kind of finish, right? The, the intense work that we do together in working with others. And the doctor's opinion actually gives us a lot of what's in working with others as well. Those seeds are, are in both chapters, both parts of the book. So. Um, you know, I, I have not, um, shared my photos in a while and, um, you know, I like to do it every now and then, especially, um, when I get to a chapter like this, because if you don't know me, you know, you might think, okay, yeah, sure. She's going to do this, but because she looks normal, right? She looks like a normal person and she probably doesn't really, probably doesn't really have this problem. You know, and so I think it's always a good time for me to um, share my pictures so that you have an indication. And if you've seen my pictures before, you know, um, you know, you can snooze if you want. <laughs> you can take a little snooze. But, um, you know, when I the reason I like to show it. There we go. The reason that I like to show it is to me, it's a, a physical representation of what it looks like to have an experience of the miraculous, right? That's that's what this is. Um, and, you know, the picture of me in the denim shirt with my husband, I look at it, I'm like, oh my God, I was a baby there, I was so young. That was 20, over, that's 22 years ago. You know, my daughter's 22, that baby is 22 now. And I remember when she was born, I was over the moon in love with this child love with my husband. Thank you, God. We're still together. We have a nice marriage. Um, I thought that I was going to get over my eating problem because I had everything I wanted, right? I was like, I, you know, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to be a good mom and I'm going to lose weight. And here I am in the pink. My daughter got older and I got bigger. So having what I wanted didn't, didn't wind up with me having, you know, any greater management or control over this 
food addiction. I had this problem most of my life, this food addiction. And it went on through the years, right? And as my daughter got older, you'll see the majority of our photos together up until a certain point are almost always in restaurants. Because when the food is your master, the master tells you what you like to do. And what I thought I liked to do was sit in restaurants, um, you know, and eat, right? Um, and, uh, you know, these are some more pictures of me in the red. I was having a party in my house that day. I certainly did not look like I was throwing a party. My house didn't look like I was having a party and I didn't look like I was having a party. And in the green, you know, I was on vacation, having a phenomenal vacation. I had actually been abstinent, feeling great and picked something up on that vacation. And that was it. Lost my abstinence. Um, and it took 10 months for me to come back into the rooms from that trip. Here's me with my sister and my sister-in-laws. Um, generally, I went to family functions with drink, you know, had to have a drink in my hand and had to eat a lot of food because I showed up at all those events with all the resentments that I had ever carried around with me from the, like from a little girl, real or imagined, anything ever, anyone ever did to me. I walked into every event with that, like, it felt like it was like a list in my pocket of the ways that people did me wrong. And I have a wonderful, loud, opinionated, overbearing, loving family, just like me, right? And so none of these people meant to cause me harm, but they all have opinions and they all had perspectives. Um, and I walked around sore and angry a lot. And I felt like there was a wall that separated me from the people whom I loved. Um, and this is a more recent picture um, with my sister, my sister-in-laws and my mother. Um, and that wall that I felt is gone. It just doesn't exist anymore. Um, this is me when my son was a baby. He was extraordinarily active and the size of my body made it very difficult to hold this active baby. And so I couldn't hold him comfortably and I couldn't keep up with him. And if you notice, he's like, or he's looking down, he's like planning his escape because that's how this kid was, like always on the go. And I, and I was devastated because I wanted him more than anything. Um, he came after a lot of loss and heartache and I could not enjoy being his mother at that point. I loved him and wanted him, but it was really hard for me to, to be able to do what I needed to do. Um, you know, these are more side-by-sides. This is me in the leopard sweater. Um, my son was a baby, you know? Um, and this was a few years later when he was graduating from I'm um, not graduating, but like from middle school or got some certificate, some nice award. And, you know, you could just say side by side, totally different, totally different person, right? Physically. And these are pictures of me and my mom. What I think is really significant is the picture of me in the gray. I had recovered. I had already recovered. My body hadn't caught up yet, but I was, I was hosting a big, beautiful catered affair for my family. And um, there was tons of food. There was tons of alcohol. There was tons of, there was a room for dessert 
at the end of the party, right? None of the food called my name at all, but even more powerful than that, that wall that separated me from my family was gone. And I remembered feeling like, wow, I feel free to love everybody at this event today. Um, and this is a more, a couple of years ago, picture of me and my mom, um, as my mother aged. Um, and this is me, pretty much, you know, throughout the years now. And what I always share when I get to this photo is that every one of those dresses still fits me. I go in the closet, I pull them out and wear them. And I never have to think about it. It's just, I just do it. Um, and to show it, this was a few years later, I went in my closet and I pulled out one of those dresses, right? And it just fits, which is a miracle. And these are more family side-by-side -side photos just to see, you know, what it looks like to have a transformation. Um, and again, side-by-side -side pictures. You know, what I think is really significant is my husband and I love concerts and live music and dancing. And I don't really like eating out half as much as I used to. It just has no, I'll eat out has very little interest for me. I would much prefer to be dancing and having, you know, other kinds of enjoyment. And this is me in recovery at the OA birthday party this year with like beautiful friendships that I've made along the way. Um, and some more of my friends and sisters in recovery. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah, those are my photos. So, you know, the reason I like to share those is um, usually after I share them, people who aren't quite sure that I have anything of value to say, that I have any experience, I tend to see people lean in a little bit closer because they're like, oh, wait a second. She has, she may have some experience with this program, right? And my hope is that if you're sitting here tonight in morbid obesity or in the bondage of your body, in the bondage of the food, that my, my photos can offer you some hope that if it can happen to me, it can happen for you. Right, absolutely. I believe um, I believe in miracles. This is a program of miracles. So with that, let's jump into the chapter. Hopefully I got a little, you know, got you a little bit revved up and now you wanna hear what this deal is about. So we're gonna jump into working with others. And on page 89, the first paragraph says, practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. And then it says something a little further down that to remember that they're very ill. So I wanna discuss what it means to have immunity. You know, the immunity is actually, if you look it up, right? There's different definitions, but the one that I like, it says is the ability of an organism to resist a particular infection or toxin by the action of specific antibodies, or you know, in this case, it's like sensitized, sensitized white blood cells. So if you have an immunity to something, your body can actually fight to keep you safe against it. And another definition is lack of susceptibility especially to something unwelcome or harmful. 
So I think about it like this, working with others is like an injection. It's like when I go to the doctor to get my vaccinations, it, it, it's how we stay protected, right? It's the vaccination that I get to keep me protected. And I think about it, you know, when you get a vaccination, generally what they do is they give you a small dose of the disease, right? They give you part of it. And I think that's kind of how it is when we work with others. We are in close contact with others that have this disease and we kind of almost take them in, right? And that is part of what keeps us safe. Um, and it says in that paragraph, intensive work, right? Doesn't say convenient work. It doesn't say easy or occasional work, but intensive. You know, and what I think about is my disease was not convenient. It was not convenient for me to be, you know, suffering in morbid obesity. It was never convenient for me to um, get the food that I needed. I did all sorts of crazy things in order to get what I needed. There was nothing convenient about this disease. And, um, you know, I didn't eat occasionally and the consequences were anything but easy. And so, you know, it's kind of like in recovery, we say, pick your hard, pick your hard, which is the hard you want. You want the hard of living with this disease or the hard work that we do, right? Um, you know, we can help in ways that nobody else can. We have the experience needed for this work. I have the experience. We, any one of us who gets well, we have this experience. And it's important to note that the people we are helping are sick. They're not bad, right? So we meet lots of people. Now, remember when we come in, you know, one of the greatest difficulties that we have is selfishness. That's the root of the illness. So the people that we generally meet when they're coming in and looking for help or need help, they're kind of selfish. We kind of, I remember what I was like when I came in. I was completely consumed with me. Everything was about me. Um, and I really didn't have a lot of consideration for the people that, that were coming to help me because I was so focused on me. And so we have to remember that when we're dealing with people, that they're sick. They're not bad, they're sick. Their symptoms might disturb us, but they're sick. You know, it says next, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. So what happens? Our lives begin to have meaning and purpose. That's what it says here. And that there's an importance to our very existence. We see people get well. We see them help others. We get to be a part of their transformation. And it is exciting and it's fulfilling. The relationships and friendships we make are gifts. We never knew that those gifts were in store for us. 
I did not come here thinking about the friendships and the gifts that I was going to get as a result of working with other people. And yet that's been my experience. You know, when I show those photos at the end, those slides, those pictures, um, some of those women in those pictures are women that I've sponsored, that I, that I continue to sponsor. And some are, you know, co-fellows along the way, but we've all become my friends. You know, we, we really do become friends in this program. The relationships and the friendships, they're the gifts, right? They really become gifts. Um, page 89 tells us, it gives us a warning. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. Well, why can't we? Why can't we be this way? Why can't I be a reformer if I feel like I've been reformed, right? I do feel like I've been reformed, um, but I can't be a reformer and I can't be evangelist. And, you know, and after all, I know I found the answer, right? We all found the answer. Why, why can't we be evangelists and reformers? Well, because it's not helpful. <laughs> That's really it. It doesn't help anybody. Um, you know, remember, we just want to be helpful. And evangelists and reformers turn people off, right? And we can't help anybody who's repelled by us, by our demeanor and our behavior, you know, and I think it's important that we look back for a moment in Bill's story, how Ebby showed up to help Bill, right? He did not rant or preach. He showed up looking healthy. His eyes, you know, his eyes looked different. His face was alight. He, he looked like he had an answer. And, you know, for myself, one of the things that I believe is important when I speak before a group is I try to put myself together. You know, I look back at those photos that I shared with you when I was in that red shirt having a party in my house that day. I could not put myself together. I could barely brush my teeth, could barely brush my hair. And I feel like today, part of, you know, how I show gratitude to God, to my creator, is I want to be a demonstration of, of a transformation. And so I do, you know, I, I'm of this, I, you know, my mother would always tell me before I left the house, put your lipstick on, go put your lipstick on. That's like ingrained in my brain somewhere, you know, like just go put your lipstick on. And that might not sound very like, you know, um, feminist and that's okay. I don't mean anything against anybody. For me, it's part of how I put myself together. And so I think I want to look like I got a message. I want to look as pleasing as I can. You know, I, I might be hanging around, like sometimes on these Thursdays, I go swimming right after work. I come home, it would be easy for me to get in my pajamas, I'll be really honest, and do this meeting with no makeup on, in my sweats, and no disrespect to anybody who chooses to do that. I wanna look how, I wanna look a little bit more, like I got something more than that. And I'll, I'll tell you the truth, I do my hair again. If I went swimming, I do my hair again, I freshen up my makeup again, and I put myself together again. Why? Because being a reformer is not going to sell anybody anything. But if I show you those pictures in the beginning, and I don't look that way today, you might be a little more inclined to hear what I have to say. And that's the reason I do it. 
right? That truly is the reason I do it. And a little bit of vanity. That's the truth too. A little bit of vanity thrown in there. Um, you know, page 89 says, because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. You know, and uniquely useful, meaning I have the precise qualifications for this job. You know, what job? For the job of helping whomever God puts before me, right? I think about, you know, I have the exact qualifications that are going to be useful. And what it tells me is that all of the struggles that I had were not wasted. None of that was a waste of time. I can't look and say, oh, I wasted all those years. There is no wasted years. You know, in fact, I'd say it was my on-the-job training. Whatever I did before was like my internship for the important work that I'm going to do here. Um, and I think, you know, it's so that I'm best able to do the work that God assigned me, right? He knows what my assignment's going to be. And it seems like so long as I continue to carry the message, God consistently places people in my path who seem to have an experience that I have one time had, right? That I could share something with. Um, page 90 says, you know, now it's going to talk about um, when we are talking to people. If he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste your time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. Be patient, realizing that you're dealing with a sick person. So, you know, again, we're reminded that the person is sick and not bad. And, you know, how do we know if someone doesn't want to stop, right? We get, I get, I get, you know, phone calls or I get outreach from people or, you know, I get contact with people um, who, they think, you know, they might seem like they want to stop. Like, after all, they're at a meeting. They must want to stop, right? Or they're calling. They must want to stop. And one of the ways that I can sort of determine if somebody doesn't want to stop, um, if they don't want to stop, they're going to try to negotiate. They're going to try to, like, work out the terms. Whatever the terms are that you're offering them, they're going to offer you excuses. They're going to give you lots of reasons. You know, here's some kind of things that alert me that somebody might not really want to. They won't call on time. You know, if they have a phone call, an appointment with you. And I don't mean like a five minute, you know, we're all, we all live in reality. But I mean, like you make an appointment and they don't call you, right? Or they call you half an hour later or they forgot or they overslept. You know, it's not, it's not like they're on fire for it. Um, and sometimes they may actually tell you, I've had people tell me, I don't want to stop. I don't feel ready yet. People say that don't push them and don't chase them down. You know, our disease sells the solution more than we do. Otherwise, what we're doing 
is mere frothy emotional appeal, right? If I'm trying to convince people that they need this program, that they ought to do these things, then I'm appealing to them from an emotional place and, and that doesn't work, right? We're told that in the doctor's opinion that never suffices, seldom suffices. So here we're gonna give more direction, page 91. See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversations, meaning asking general questions, job, family, where you live, et cetera. You know, I usually have those early conversations just to get to know you. You know, we can do it via Zoom. At meetings where we were face-to-face, -face, it would like be just like you'd sit and chat after the meeting, or sometimes we'd even have great conversations in the parking lot, just getting to know each other or at the coffee pot, you know, just kind of chatting. Um, and, you know, it says here, after a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. So first we just have general conversations like, oh, what do you do for a living? You have any kids? Where do you live, right? General stuff. And then you turn the conversation to something about eating. And, start sharing enough, it says here, about your own drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences. Why? To encourage him to speak of himself. So I start just sharing my own experiences and tell him enough so that he might want to speak to. If he wishes to talk, let him do, do, let him do so. So when I start talking to someone and they start talking a lot, I stop and I just listen. I get quiet because I wanna hear what, what their experiences are. It's not, those early conversations are not, you sit down and listen to me, I'm gonna tell you. It's, I talk enough to hopefully get them talking. And then my job is to actively listen, to really actively listen. Um, why? Because I'm gonna get a better idea of how I ought to proceed when I can hear them. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up until the time you quit. But say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. So you don't talk about how it was that you got over it, not yet. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor has caused you. Being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. You know, I think, first of all, Bill, Bill Wilson was an amazing salesman. This is, a, this is a strategy that salespeople use, right? Um, he used this strategy to help sell the ideas to the alcoholic. You know, they say, if you want to sell a new, if you want to sell somebody a car, don't convince them how great the car is. Convince them that walking is really difficult, that life without a car is pretty hard, right? Don't tell them how great this car is. First, he needs to know that he needs a car, right? kind of the same thing with this program. Not gonna sell people how great this program is. First, they gotta be sold on the necessity 
for a program. So when I talk with someone, I talk about my eating and dieting habits and experiences. I talk about the painful weight fluctuations. You know, I, I lost and gained and lost and gained. There was no predictability about what was going to fit me one week to the next. It was like, it was just a gamble. Every time I went in the closet, I had no clue. Um, you know, I talked about the binges that made me physically sick, how I missed important social obligations and celebrations all the time. Basically, if the person is sad and depressed and in a sad and depressed mood, I take out my most painful stories and I use that approach, right? I really, I. I don't say, oh, it's going to get better. I just keep talking about how awful it was for me. But if the person is laughing through the encounter, and some of us have, you know, good sense of humor, or that's part of our defense mechanism, we laugh a lot about our craziness with the food, then I tell my own crazy humorous stories. I go from that angle. You know, I've got a few of those. I've got like the heartbreaking ones where I missed my friend's funeral. I missed a friend's funeral because I was too embarrassed about my weight gain. That was humiliating. And I felt so sick about myself. And then I, you know, but if someone's in a light and funny mood, I tell them the story about my cabbage soup diets. You know, how all it did was give me gas. Then I was, you know, at a party and like my stomach sounded like I ate a cat, you know? I tell them that story and let people laugh a little bit. And you know, so you kind of get a feel for, for who you're meeting and what's going to work with that. Page 92, then it says, tell them how baffled you were, how you finally learned that you were sick. Remember, drill down on the sick, right? The sick part is important because if people understand that they're sick, then they can better understand that they're going to need a treatment, right? Give them an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done in the chapter on alcoholism. If he's an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. And to me, this really illustrates just how valuable the suffering of my experiences are. Because the way we sell the solution is we allow the person to see the need for the solution. And they mentioned the chapter more about alcoholism, which completely drives home the point that if one is a true compulsive overeater, then there's no chance that he can do the job alone. That's what that whole chapter is about. But if you have this thing, you're not going to be able to do it alone. In fact, the chapter ends with that reminder. It says once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Page 92, the first full paragraph says, if you're satisfied that he is a real alcoholic, 
begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. So we dwell on the hopeless feature. We don't tell them it's gonna get better. We don't say, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Don't worry, now you're gonna get better. We don't say that yet, right? Don't cheer them up. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. And you can explain that your willpower doesn't function normally. You know, try not to discuss this in any lecturing way, but give your experience. I tell people, you know, I tell people about the money I spent on commercial diets and gym memberships, how I would spend a small fortune on prepackaged foods or get prescription. Like for me, I spent a lot of money going to doctors. I had a prescription for Fenfen, which was like all the rage at one time. It was going to be the the cure-all for this disease and all other types of medical solutions I saw. I saw all kinds of other things. And then I would lose some weight and then decide that I should be able to have, I don't know, a slice of pizza with my family because it was Friday night, right? I would say, oh, well, it's Friday night. I should be able to eat pizza. I should be able to eat a slice. But I wound up eating three slices and then, you know, sneaking downstairs the rest of the night and finishing the pie and then just binging the rest of the night. Um, and then I did this over and over and over again. And, you know, the important thing is that in these early conversations, you're stressing the you, not the them. I'm not, I don't tell them, oh, you better not ever eat pizza because if you eat pizza, you know, you're never gonna be able to stop and you're gonna binge all night. I tell my story. I tell my specific story, right? And I don't tell them that they're compulsive eaters. We never diagnose anybody, but we let them come to this conclusion on their own. If they start to match some of their experiences with your experiences, they're gonna to begin to you know, form their own diagnosis. They're gonna to come to their own conclusion. Page 93 explains what comes next. I love this. We really want to get them to ask the question, what did you do to get well, right? We almost lead them to ask us this. And this is the question that then gives us the freedom to talk about the spiritual feature. Once they ask that question, then we can start discussing the spiritual feature. But we don't get on a religious discussion. And here are some important points. He does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose that any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he's willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he lived by spiritual principles. So he has to agree that he's willing to consider that there's something bigger that can help him and that he has to start living a better life, right? He has to start thinking, she's got to start thinking that I need to live differently, not just eat differently, live differently. Stop doing the things that we know are wrong, right? Those are the spiritual principles. You know, 
what does that mean? Well, even, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I don't know what God's will is for me yet. I'm just starting. Great. You probably know what God's will isn't for you, right? No stealing, no lying, no abusive acts, no abusive words. And start looking day one for ways of helping others. And one thing that often needs accentuating is to focus on your own behaviors and not the rest of the world's. That's something I could start telling people day one. When they come in, you know, I think about my sponsor and, and the loving suggestions when I came in and told her all the rotten things my sister had done or all the rotten things my sister-in-law said or all the, you know, horrible things that my mother and, and lovingly and gently and firmly, she would say, bless them, change me. Bless them, change me. Bless them. I didn't even know what she meant yet. But I saw it as a signal of stop talking so much about them. <laughs> Start focusing on yourself a little bit. And those were the gentle ways that I was redirected. Page 94 says, we're dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. Again, it has little to do with specific religions, right? Now, somebody who has a religious background or religious practice, like never disrespect, never show disrespect for that. Always honor, right? Like value that. That's a wonderful thing. We should never get in the way of that. But if someone doesn't, just remember, we're only dealing with principles common to most denominations, just general principles. You know, what do we do? It says outline the program of action, explaining how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past and why you are now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him which we know because this is our immunity. So they are helping us, right? They're keeping us immune. Um, actually, yeah, so make it plain he's under no obligation to you and that you only hope that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is that he place the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Make it clear that he's not under pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. He should not be offended. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a thing. And I love that. You know, it. You tell the person about the steps, right? But you really stress the importance of passing this on. In fact, when we start working with a person in the very beginning of the doctor's opinion, it clearly mentions this. In fact, it's on the first page of the doctor's opinion. Very first page, third paragraph, it says, as part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conception to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others, right? Very first conversation I have with somebody, 
as I make it abundantly clear that if they get well, they're going to have to agree that they'll help other people. And, you know, I said that Bill was an amazing salesperson, right? And how we learn, you know, how we sell the solution through him. Well, we're never to trick anyone into the real terms of this agreement. We might be salesmen for this program, but we're not slick, right? And we're not deceptive about what the real solution is. We spell out the real terms of this agreement right off the bat. A person is told that in order to get well and remain well, he will have to help others. There's no tricks there, right? These are the terms, and I always lay them out when I'm working with another. And I also tell them that if they're interested in working with me, it means that they will allow me to share their numbers as a source of contact with someone who may benefit. And I say that day one does not mean that you're going to wait until you recover before you're somebody who should be, numbers should be made available to other people. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to be carrying the message to anybody day one. But if I have a sponsee who I know is struggling and is recovering and is getting well and I see them struggling, I might say to them, you know what you really need to do? You need to call some newcomers. Here's a few newcomers that I've been speaking to, call them, right? So my feeling is I'm happy that anybody calls me, but if you're going to call me and I'm going to spend time with you sharing what I know about this program, the, the conditions are, the agreement is, is that your number should be able to be shared as well. Because this is, this is a we fellowship. You cannot do the job on it. Um, you know, I also give people, when we start working together, I give people a chance to think it over before just agreeing to continue to work with me. And I make it really clear that if they don't want to work with me, I won't be upset. And if I see them at a meeting or I pass them on the street or they call me later on for an outreach call, I will still greet them warmly. Still getting nice to people. And I'll offer them fellowship. And, you know, here's the line that I just love. I love this part. It says, if your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may have perhaps made a friend. So we're calm and we're nice. We're not yelling. We're not arguing. We're not bullying. We don't talk to people in abusive tones. In fact, if a person is all revved up and worked up and speaking to somebody in a way like that, they're not really following the directions. They're not. And what I really want to stress is, I love this part, it says, you have perhaps made a friend. The chapter, by the way, mentions the word friend 16 times. This chapter, Working With Others, has the word friend in it 16 times. That's no mistake. It's not an accident. When people say, I'm not your friend, I'm your sponsor. I'm your sponsor, I'm not your friend. I think perhaps their definition of a friend might need retuning. That's my opinion. Or they might be operating from fear. They might be coming from this position 
that they can't help somebody if they're not respected, if they're too nice. If I'm too nice to you, you're not going to respect me and I can't help you and you won't listen to me. And it's simply not true. It's just not true. People will listen, not out of fear, not if they're afraid of you, if they're hopeless, and that you demonstrate through your demeanor that there is hope. That's what gets people. If you want to have direction and you want somebody to best listen and follow what you have to offer, offer them hope and showing your demeanor that the hope really does exist, right? And I also think about it like this before we're gonna, before I'm gonna stop and take questions and then we'll pick up the next time. Um, that the, um, the reason that we have to be friends, I believe with somebody is, first of all, this is, this is a program of spiritual transformation. This is a program, of, it's a God program. And my understanding of God is he wants his children to love each other, to be kind to one another. And, you know, if you got well, if I got well before someone else did, does that mean that I'm superior to them? Not at all. It means that perhaps I got the medication a little earlier and I happened to decide to take the medication according to the directions a little sooner than somebody else made it. That's it. Does not mean I'm better than anybody. And certainly anybody is worthy of anybody else's friendship, right? I mean, it makes perfect sense. The other thing is, especially if somebody is not getting well, right? If somebody's not ready to take direction, if somebody is just argumentative and difficult and looking to negotiate and not following directions at all. If I'm not nice to them, if I don't treat them with friendliness and kindness, kindliness, um, first of all, that's just not, that's not aligned with my ideals. It's not aligned with the ideals that I'm given. I'm supposed to show love and tolerance, right? But even more than that, the day comes when they are ready to take direction and follow through. Are they gonna go to somebody who treated them like garbage? Or are they gonna go to somebody who, who made it easy for them to come back, right? And I think oftentimes the nature of this disease is people, God, I wish it weren't the case, people don't always get well the first time in. It takes many of us, many, many painful experiences. But thank God for the people, for me, who were always kind and who always welcomed me back and who always made it easy for me to come back in. My disease told me they don't want to talk to you, right? My disease lied to me and said, yeah, don't bother calling them. They're probably disgusted with you. They don't want to talk to you. But their demeanor did not tell me that. And those people made it easy to come back. And I think that is very often our role in working with others. That's one of our early roles, to make it easy for people to come back. And um, I'm going to stop at this point. I'm going to stop the recording. Um,